0: Well, it's good to have you here this morning. Um, We are continuing our series on new wine worship based on this text of scripture in Matthew chapter 9. Last week, we started talking about the wineskin, that in order to have the new wine, you need a new wineskin. And this idea of new wine for us is that we want the reality of the gospel, the new wine is the glory and goodness of Jesus, our union with Jesus, and the new covenant of grace in Jesus. That's the new wine in the church. It's vibrant, it's powerful, and it's transformative. That's what we want, right? We want the real deal. Right? That kind of that powerful reality that this Jesus that we talk about is not a figment of our imagination. It's not theory. It's reality. And it's not just reality. It's the specifics of what we're trusting in. Our lives depend on it. That's what we want. So the question of what kind of wineskin holds that is the one I want to try and answer today. So we're going to talk a little bit about Anglicanism again. We're going to talk about things like liturgy, which is everyone's favorite topic of discussion. Super culturally relevant. Um, but here's the thing it makes me think about, is how the heck did I get here? Uh, that's, a, that's what it makes me think about a little bit. Like when I, so I grew, I'm third generation pastor. I grew up in the church. And my rebellious years weren't your typical rebellious years. My rebellious years were still following Jesus, so I was still devoted to Jesus. But as my kind of expression of rebellion was to go outside of the church and try and seek those who seemed furthest away from Jesus. The most unchurchy people you could find in the world. And so where that led me to was doing a lot of what we called skate ministry, so skateboarding. So I would build um, skate parks and plop them down in parking lots all over the place and just collect vagrant children to come skateboard and hang out. So that turned into doing skate parks around Canada to doing hardcore rock shows in skate parks around Canada to share the good news of Jesus. So I was like steeped in these very, let's call them non-traditional contexts. And then it started getting into some other things. There's lots of young guys, and they were rough guys, and they were getting into trouble all the time, and we were trying to build a relationship with them. So one of the things I started doing, this is going to make some of you really uncomfortable is I started hosting fight nights because these guys would fight all the time and they would hurt themselves really badly. So part of what we did was we started a fight club with some boundaries and parameters to keep them from doing long-term damage. I know it sounds odd. So that's our new ministry objective for this next year at Christchurch Oceanside. Martin's going to referee, right? So I'm, I'm not saying this is the best model to follow. This is just what my young adult years, you know, looked like for some reason. Now, part of that process, so after working with Canadian kids, my wife and I got married, and we moved to Thailand right away. And we basically did similar type things in Thailand. We ran skate parks, we helped start a youth center, and we worked in the darkest parts of the country to help um, bring the gospel to slum contexts, children stuck in sex slavery, helping women get out, things like that. That's what we worked in. So that was kind of like our natural proclivity is to go, where's the darkest, hardest spaces, and how do we bring Jesus to that context? Somehow, that life turned into becoming an Anglican priest. And I have moments, I'll be honest with you, I have moments where I sit there and I'm like, what just happened? How did that happen? And I think this topic of what we're looking at today really gives an opportunity for me to go, this is part of what brought me from there to here. And why I'm in this and why I think This kind of church, doing church like this, I think is the wineskin we need for the gospel of transformation that can work in the darkest spaces. And I believe that it's the coming together of these. A gospel that actually works, actually helps, actually saves real problems. But then what does the church look like to hold that, to contain that? and ensure that everyone gets it. So when we talk about liturgy, part of what we're talking about is the structure and the form of a church, and its gathering. Now, every church has a liturgy, whether they call it that or not. right? Every church has their Sundays follow a pattern, right? a structure to their worship. Often what happens after a period of time is the same things end up getting said over and over every Sunday. Right? Repetition works its way in. Ritual comes in of going, these are the right things to say, so let's say them every week. So liturgy isn't something just for the older, traditional, mainline churches. Liturgy is something that makes its way into every church. It's the rhythm. It's the pattern that starts to form over time. So what is liturgy, though? Liturgy itself comes from the Greek, and its meaning is the work of the people. Isn't that an interesting phrase? Liturgy is about the work of the people, or the public work of the church. So Anglican liturgy is intentional about sharing the work, sharing the responsibility. So you might come to our church and go, I'm not used to saying things. You know, the scripture reading isn't just read. Like with the psalm, we participate in it. And that might, that might be new for many of you. But the reason we do that is so that it's a shared responsibility and a shared experience. And so all through the liturgy, there's this back and forth, right? Something is set up here, and then the congregation says something, and the back and forth. That comes from the Reformation. Because the Roman Catholic Latin Mass that kind of led to the Reformation involved very little of the congregation. It was predominantly a clerical, a clergy act, and the people just witnessed it. Even the communion itself, you would only participate with part of it. You wouldn't get the wine as well as the bread. You'd just get the bread. So the Reformation is all about this We need to share this together. It needs to be an us gathering, an us liturgy. Now, modern services today, I don't think they always recognize this, but they can start to lean away from the shared responsibility. And it can become more of a show that's put on for people. An entertainment where the congregation is there to consume it or to be fans of it. We actually want something that's shared. So when we talk about this, I think today what we're talking about is what's our liturgical wineskin? And I know at first that sounds kind of boring, but stick with me because I think it's going to have serious implications and it's going to give a glorious vision for what we do. Now, here's what happens in the wineskin. Now, I'm not a wine connoisseur. I probably could have got Richard to come talk about this instead of me. But inside the wineskin, here's what happens. So, the grapes are gathered, they're harvested, then they're crushed and pressed, and the skins interact with the juices of the grape, and something takes place, right? So you take these crushed and pressed grapes, and you put them into an animal wineskin. Sewn together skins, part of this animal, and inside of it, fermentation takes place. The sugar turns into alcohol. Now the reason this is a helpful analogy that Jesus is using is because wine in the Bible is always associated with joy and with celebration. And so his way, following Jesus, the gospel, is about coming into the joy of salvation, coming into the celebration of reunion with God. So we're not glorifying alcohol here. It's more used as an analogy to talk about moving from something that's sweet to something that impacts you. Understand the difference? If you have a ton of sugar, that's not a great feeling. But the idea here is of having a drink that actually brings you into joy. Now again, there's lots of ditches here. Talking about alcohol. So let's stay to the confines of the analogy. Can you do that with me? So the fermentation process takes place, and then inside, the reason the, the skin is so valuable is that carbon dioxide is released from the wine. So we need a skin that expands with the movement and the life of the wine within it. And so the skin does that. It allows for it to expand and then releases the carbon dioxide. The fifth thing that takes place is a secondary fermentation. This is where more sugar is turned into alcohol. So it's a deeper fermentation. The sixth step is settlement, settlement. So all the pieces of the grape that don't turn into the wine settle to the bottom. Little bits of the skin, and stuff like that. Now in the, in the wine skin, is the wineskin actually absorbs much of that sediment, which I thought is actually kind of interesting. And then the seventh thing, the last thing, is when you would pour it out, there'd be a clarification process, so filtration. So you'd filter it before you serve it, right, to get any bits of that last little bit of sediment. So that's the process that wine goes through in the wine skin what we want is a liturgy, a form to our service that allows the new wine of the gospel to do something similar. So here's where I think that vision would go. Our crushed lives come into it. Where sin crushes us, and evil crushes us, and the weight of this world crushes us, we bring that in. That's why we start our service with that invitation. To all who are weary and needy to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who sin and need a Savior, Christ church, what? Opens wide her wineskin to welcome you in. That's why we start where we start. Because life hurts, doesn't it? Life is tiring, isn't it? Or do you just come in feeling like 100 bucks every time? Right, 100% hundred bucks is probably fair. Don't you normally say a million? Right? Life is hard. So that's where we start. Our crushed life comes in. And the second thing that happens is then we're brought into Christ. Christ who's been slain for salvation. We're covered by Him. United to Him. Third is the transformation process. That first fermentation. A transformation from what we were to what we were meant to be in Him. Sin is broken down, and joy takes its place. That's the process of coming to church. Doesn't that sound like that's the way it should be? It's not just an event. It's not just an experience. It's not a show. And it's not just rituals. It actually does something. It works Jesus into you deeper and further. Shouldn't it do that? Where you feel like you're leaving going, I don't just feel refreshed, I feel more united and changed by Jesus and ready for another week than before. Does that make sense? So that transformation takes place, but, and then where there's transformation, there needs to be human response. That expression of CO2. For us, it's the same way. Where there's change, we need an expression of emotion. Energy comes out of us. Tears, joy, song, shouts. That, if if Jesus is really changing and transforming us in the deepest places, then it elicits a response from us. Doesn't that seem the most human thing to do? So that's what we're looking for, is that we have this human response to God's plan of salvation being present with us. And then it's a deepening transformation again. More fermentation. Because in that deeper place where we forget about ourselves and become consumed with God in worship, then the truth goes deeper. Deeper affirmations, deeper comforts, deeper healing, deeper restoration and strengthening, where we see us more according to Jesus than we see us according to our sins and the brokenness of this world. Is that what we want? That deep affirmation. That sixth step then is the old falls off and gets absorbed into Jesus, into the skin. It's not who we are anymore. So you don't bring that stuff with you when you leave. Your forgiveness is done. Right? It's a a completed work. So all the stuff that you brought in with you, do not take it with you when you go. Leave it with Him. Leave it in Him. And then lastly, we're then devoted to our true purpose. That filtering is is that living for the glory of Christ and proclaiming Him to the world. So that's what we want. When I take this gospel out into the world and I try and give it to other people, it further filters out the stuff in me that needs to go. That's the work that it does in us. So what we need then is a liturgy that sews together three sections of skins. And here's what I think they are. We need the past. We need the present. And we need the future. And we need those things to be sewn together in our gathering. We need the past in the fact that we need the scriptures and we need church history. We need the present, that this would feel like Christianity in this cultural moment. So it's rooted in this present world, but it's also focused on the future. What is eternal? Christ and His heavenly kingdom. So I want to talk about those three things today, and I need to do so in a very succinct manner. So pray for me. So why do we care about the past? Why do we care about tradition? I think ultimately what it comes down to for us is that the new wine of the gospel is received as an inheritance. So we need connection to the past. We don't come up with the gospel. We receive the gospel right the good news is not of our own making it was given to us through the generations the message the good news of christ has been told over the whole future that's why we love the scriptures the way we do so it's about proximity to jesus and his apostles that's why we care about the past as we want the real jesus handed down to the real apostles and the way the church looked closest to Jesus. Doesn't that seem like something we should want? Okay? So that's why we value the past. Now, Canadian church history has gone through a process over the last 50 or so years of throwing off tradition in favor of this idea of freedom. And our society did very much the same. But here's the thing that we're seeing happen now. In a world I think that teaches kids that there is no authority or higher power that could tell you who you are, that there's no expectations that you need to fulfill, that you determine your own destiny and decide for yourself what love is and looks like. What does rebellion look like to a generation that grows up in that? Do you know? Tradition. So here's part of what we're seeing start to happen, which I think we're going to see more of. Tradition is growing in popularity. Already, you want to know what some of the fastest-growing churches in the country are? Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox, Russian Orthodox. You know what's the the fastest-growing service in the Roman Catholic Church amongst young people? Latin Mass. Even though the Pope is trying to stop it, but we won't get into all that. So the Pope is trying to make the Latin Mass um, a non-option where you're not allowed to do it. The young people are saying, tough, we want it. It's really interesting. So traditions on the rise, so Anglicanism is part of that. Lots of young people going to Anglicanism because our world is becoming the opposite. And so if you grow up in that, what do you start to hunger for? Structure, clarity, you actually want rules. It's an interesting dynamic. So what you're going to end up with is we're going to have all these parents and grandparents who are like really free. Let's call it like liberally minded or secularly minded or whatever. And you have growing young people who are looking for tradition. It's going to be a weird dichotomy that we're moving into. Now, all that to say, now I'm going to explain some pitfalls of tradition here in a minute, but what ends up happening, though, for us is because we want that early church authentic wineskin that holds the gospel, then we have to have an awareness of church history. There's a book called The Didache. It's worth reading if you're younger, and at all interested in church history. It's called The Teaching of the Twelve Apostles. It's written in the first century, first century of the church, okay? And what it covers is it gives insight and instruction to all the early church functions, their morals, their values, and how they worshipped. So you can actually read that today. It's called the Didache, D-I-D-A-C-H-E, in case you're writing that down, Okay? Now, what the Didache does is give special mention, though, to a few things that existed in the early church service. The Lord's Prayer, the Eucharist or Communion, the prayers that go with Communion, baptismal prayers, prayers for the sick, and prayers for your daily bread. That this The early church is really all about the essentials. It's going, Jesus taught us how to pray like this. Let's pray like that. Jesus said his table was really important. We should do that every week. Jesus taught from the scriptures and the apostles wrote them. Let's do long readings of the scriptures. These are kind of just the simple things. And then out of the early church comes the creeds. The summaries of the essentials of who Jesus is And what Jesus has accomplished. And wherever there was problems that arose, misrepresenting Jesus, the creeds help keep you on track. So we have the Apostles' Creed, which is one of the earliest. Then we have the Nicene Creed, which comes out in the 300s. These are the fundamentals of the Christian gathering. You with me? These are helpful for one fundamental reason. They keep us on what? Jesus. Okay? If there's one thing I'm going to be known for at the end of my ministry, it's that I Jesus-juke you on every question. It's really, that's the fundamental purpose. These prayers keep us on Jesus. These confessions keep us on Jesus. All of this helps to be clear about who Jesus is. Because if Jesus saves us, we sure want to get that right. Right? Right? So here's the dangers or the downfalls of tradition though is this. Is that it always comes with the temptation towards religiosity. Ritualism. And there's five kind of key things that come up with ritualism. The first is rule keeping. When the tradition becomes about keeping the rules, we start to lose that new wine new covenant, don't we? When it's all about keeping the external expectations and the regulations and emphasizing adherence to the rituals and the traditions without a genuine understanding of their deeper significance in Jesus. It places a strong emphasis on performance rather than inner transformation. So that's the pitfall. Just because you go get tradition doesn't mean you get the source of what it's pointing to. You might just get a tradition. Okay? The second thing is self-justification. When we follow tradition, the temptation is to go, see, I did all the things and so I'm good. That's self-justification. It's driven by a desire to earn one's safety and place and salvation and favor with God instead of God achieving that for us in Jesus. It's self-reliant. And we try to establish our righteousness based on our own efforts rather than God's grace. So, when tradition starts to trump grace, that's what gives us security. We're letting go of Jesus in order to have that. See it? The third thing is that it lacks personal encounter with God. Just because you do the things doesn't mean you meet with God. You just did the things. You said the prayers. And if it doesn't lead to transformation of the inner life and your life at home and it doesn't help anything, you just went through the motions, what comes next is judgmentalism and legalism. We're going to compare ourselves to everyone else and go, we're doing it right and they're all doing it wrong. Right? Because our self-righteousness depends on it. All of this leads to an absence of genuine change. Of meeting with Jesus and actually working in the areas of your life you need him most. So what we need then is worship that's grounded in the tradition but actually leads us to the source. Here's what I've found in churches that they've got a solid liturgy, right? It's church history one-on-one. It's just like, it's got all the things it's supposed to have, but it feels dead. Have You ever been in a service like that? Here's what it's like. It's like a uh, um, a campfire with all these logs and no fire. It's like all of these things... Are the right things to burn? We need, these are all the truths. But they're so piled on there, but there's no fire to it, that it works. That it burns. That it does something. That it sets you on fire with passion. It's just a whole bunch of right things, but they're not in you. We don't just want a liturgy that says we have all the right things. What we want is that to write on our hearts. Right? That's what we want. So what it needs then is it needs to be present in this moment. The Colossians 3 reading that we did today talks about this. So Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Not just read in your services. Let it dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. So The gospel isn't just in the liturgy. The gospel's in you, and you're able to communicate it to one another through hard times, right? Where it becomes our language. It becomes how we think and feel. It becomes how we speak to one another. So admonishing one one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So where does true worship come from? We have the truth dwelling in us and in the heart, it springs out into worship. It's not just we like singing good songs. It's I so know the presence and power of my salvation. I can see the death I was stuck in and I feel the life I now have. I must worship in gratitude. Isn't that what we want? Or do we just want to play the game? We want the real thing. We want to know the power of Jesus and genuinely offer worship that comes from that. Right? This is what Paul's talking about. The tradition, if used rightly, should serve a full reception of that new wine in you and in this culture. That's the truth of the gospel. It should produce genuine worship. This means then in our genuine worship, the tradition is going to continue in us to the next generation. That's, what, that's how it continues. And here's how the scriptures consistently say, talk about this. That it will happen by creating new music. The tradition when done rightly, will result in new music. So should the tradition be a gatekeeper and say, no new music, only old music? Does that make sense? This is not the way the Scriptures talk about it. All the Psalms, you want to know how many references there are to sing to him a new song? Over and over and over and over again. So here's how spiritual songs come up in Ephesians five. Paul talks about it again. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. When God's Spirit mingles with your spirit, music springs forth. That's what the Scriptures teach us. So let me say it like this. When the presence of Jesus and the good news of His salvation is in His church, artists flourish. That's actually what should happen. Art comes out of us. And that that art would look true to the context we exist in, which is this culture in this time. Anywhere where the tradition starts to mingle in with itself and say this particular local culture now needs to be your local culture is where things get off the rails. And here's where I think we've done it in Anglicanism. We can easily say English culture now needs to be your. Right, But this is different than the fundamentals of what Anglicanism says. Because Anglicanism is all about saying that people should be able to worship in their own language. That's at the heart of the Reformation. You shouldn't have to learn Latin to worship. And you shouldn't have to learn English to worship. You should be able to worship in your tongue. Your place of birth, in your culture, in your music, and in your way. That's why the residential school stuff is such a sin, not only against the people, but against the gospel. Because it robbed them of expressing worship of Christ in their culture. And in their language. Do you see that? It's fundamental to what we believe. Temptation serves a culture into proclaiming Christ in their own language and in their own expressions. Now, here's the temptation of the modern worship movement. Okay, so I'm not just going to pick on tradition. Here's the temptations that come up with our present expressions of worship. And I think this is a very unique threat in our time. So part of my history is that I was in a modern worship band, multiple bands. I toured around Canada, did conferences, charismatic movements, stuff like that. So this is this is part of my journey was discerning some of this stuff. The modern worship movement has been kind of co-opted by capitalism. Is that this modern music is being turned and used primarily as entertainment, motivation, self-help, and the people around it, are or, or the church as it gathers, is more like potential buyers and subscribers than co-worshippers. Like worship, now if you grow in your worship expression, it looks like getting record deals and concerts where people pay 250 bucks to come to your concert, and we call it worship. It's serious trappings in our time. I think worship, more specifically, worship music has been commodified and has been packaged in some of these other movements as as the singular sacrament that you meet with God in. So the modern worship movement says you just meet with God through good experiences, good music, good lights, good shows. And there's really very little talk about the Lord's table, about your union with Christ and your baptism. It just makes it all, the only place and the only way you meet with God is through a good worship service. It's very narrow of our enjoyment of Christ. And I think it's especially trained for younger Christians. And so what I mean by that is that music has become this primary way in which young Christians experience God and they haven't experienced Him in anything else. What that does is it cultivates a dependency on worship experiences that are not anchored in the revelation of Christ in the Scriptures and are disconnected from our union with Christ at His table. I think it's a spiritual equivalent of a person whose vision of a healthy relationship is only great sex. And it's not healthy vulnerability and repentance and self sacrificial love and devotion and servant heartedness and faithfulness. We've narrowed down what Christianity is to just a music experience. And this is the bulk of what I see younger people dealing with. And they wonder why I don't see the transformation I want to see, I don't see the growth I want to see, I don't feel closer to Jesus. It's because we just did a concert that stirred emotion and you felt like you were able to express something, but you leave having felt like you didn't receive. Because you weren't reunified with Jesus. I think the danger in that is that music now exists for the congregant's pleasure and not the glorification of Christ. Then music is seeking to unite. Like our whole church systems are about let's do music that makes you feel like you've met with the music instead of you feeling like I've met with Christ. I feel like we're just, we're off and not recognizing it. The problem with that then is now churches are chasing giving you music experiences. And they're chasing different demographics. Some churches go, we're just going to hit this demographic. Some churches go, we're going to hit the young demographics. If we can just give them a music experience that they like, then they feel like they've had a spiritual experience. The Music is meant to serve a greater vision, isn't it? And so here's our vision. We want music that continues the tradition on is inspired by the Holy Spirit at work in our artists, is authentic to the people within our church, and that means it's multi-generational. We want multi-generational worship. It means last week sounded a little bit different than this week. But we're cultivating a more mature expression of our worship than just, I want my playlist represented on Sunday. Right? Right? So our worship then, as it's cultivated together, is one that should resonate with and call to the spirits of our neighbors. So they come in, it's grounded in our culture. Like the music sounds like here. And then when people come in, they go, not only was the music beautiful, but it resonated with me somewhere deep where I felt this draw to need God. Where they meet with the presence of Christ in our worship. And then here's the last point that I'll wrap up with this music should serve our participation in the Lord's table. Because the Lord's table is our entrance into the future. So let me explain that. So, in order, so our worship is going to be our wineskin. It's going to include the past, the present, and the future. And the future is about heavenly participation. When we go to this table, the historic Christian understanding of this is that we are on a journey from the moment we gather in here of ascending into heavenly realities. And it's not just the music that carries us there. And we go, oh, I had an otherworldly experience. It's specifically that we are, in our spirits, going to the table at the supper of the Lamb and eating of His grace. That this table is participating in a heavenly reality outside of and beyond time. That this is about the worship in the heavenly realm. And that when we read of what's taking place in heaven, this is a foretaste of what's to come for eternity. Perfect union with Christ. Freedom from sin and evil and death. And constant state of jubilant, self-forgetful worship of Christ. That's, what we, that's our crescendo in our gathering. So when we reach the table point, that's the high point, so to speak, of our gathering. As we hold the Word and the sacrament, that we not only hear about Christ in the Gospel, we eat it. We take it into ourselves by the Spirit. And that these lowly pieces of bread and these cups of wine are are meant to interact with our senses that we would see and feel that the gospel is reality. You see why this is happening? And so God's power is moving in the midst of the table and the humble offerings and grace is being imparted from Christ by His Spirit into your heart. That is a heavenly experience, isn't it? And so when we then, having received of grace, respond in worship, when we've confessed our sins and God has said, you're forgiven. When we brought our needs and Christ says, have this grace to carry you. When you brought your hunger for comfort, comfort and healing and wholeness and strengthening and purpose. And God says, I give you Christ to answer all those questions. It should make you want to worship, shouldn't it? And the music is there to serve our expression of it, to give us words to say, but don't be held by them. To give us songs to sing, but don't be limited by them. We want to cultivate a culture of worship in this church that feels like it goes up into heavenly realities, and we love it ourselves in worship and his presence pours down where people would leave going I don't know what just happened but it was like I left this world and was caught up in a beautiful one where the pain of this world was forgotten and I was overwhelmed by love that's the experience of what church is meant to be. And music can't carry that by itself. Only the person and work of Jesus can accomplish that, right? Who else can achieve such a glorious vision but Christ Himself? Could we expect Patty to do that for us? That's not fair, is it, Patty? We need something higher better, greater, stronger to do that work than musicians. No offense. But I actually think a vision like that is freeing for our musicians. Because when they don't have to carry the weight that Jesus is meant to carry, they can can actually just create. Create beautiful things. Doesn't that seem healthier? So I think the skin, the wine skin that we need, needs the past. We need the tradition to give us strength and form that it can actually hold us to the gospel. But it needs to be rooted in the present so we're going to find cultural ways to express it in our here and now that seem natural and authentic to us. So you know what? That's probably going to look like it's not super dependent on pipe organs because we don't have pipe organs, right? That's not true to our honest situation. We're going to make stuff that's more true to the island. But ultimately, all of it serves to move to a higher place, which is the reality of heaven, which transcends music styles and brings us into the very presence and union with Jesus. Amen? So let's do that now together and prepare hearts for his table. So take a moment